0: Welcome all to another edition of a positive podcast where we work to enhance our lives by exposing the tools that we already have inside of us. My podcasts are designed to be short inspirations that will take these proven methodologies of positive psychology and give you examples and deeper insights on how to practically apply them in your own life. In some of my other podcasts, I've shared tips and tools. Today, as I will do on occasion, I interview someone who can share wisdom and life experiences that essentially do the same thing. Today, we have the privilege to interview an amazing woman, Ruth Devora Wallen licensed clinical social worker and the founder of torah therapeutics ruth devora is an accomplished musician performer social worker psychotherapist and educator Ruth makes her Torah-based therapeutic techniques accessible to the lay public by distilling therapeutic concepts from the Torah in general, and in particular, Hasidic philosophy, and creates cutting-edge educational materials for her audience and clients. Additionally, Ruth Devor spent some time in both Morristown, where I grew up, and in Los Angeles, where my husband grew up and knows both of us personally, and is someone we are proud to call a friend. Let's get right into today's interview. Good morning, and welcome to our podcast interview with Ruth Devora. It's truly an honor and a privilege. You know, Ruth Devora and I go way back. I've known you for at least thirty years. The past thirty years, I grew up in yeah, Mars You're only
1: thirty-five. <laughs> you're <laughs> right. only thirty-five.
0: Growing up in Morristown, New Jersey, my family had the privilege of hosting you for many Shabbos meals. And I, but I really got to know you when I was 16 years old, studying in Bess Rifka High School in New York. And I had the privilege to commute with you many Friday afternoons from your job at the nursing home in Staten Island.
1: We would travel yes, from Staten and, Island back to Morristown. Actually Brooklyn, the end of Brooklyn, Bro- right before Staten Island. Right before the bridge, right? Exactly. And um,
0: I remember many a conversations that we had during those trips that left me with lots to think about and ponder. But my favorite part about our time together was your positive energy. The vibe that you give off, which is really uplifting and heartwarming. And whenever I would reach out to you during the past 25 years, I always felt that you were happy to speak to me. You were always eager to help. And I love that. There's no baloney.
1: There's no no baloney. I'm right there with you.
0: I love it. So I'm gonna ask you some basic questions today. You know, I've always had the sense that you love what you do and that it fills you with purpose. And meaning, you give up this happy-go-lucky vibe and it comes through in all that you do. Did you always know that you wanted to be a social worker? I think that's your official title.
1: Um, well, that's one of my official titles. I'm, I, I wear a lot of hats or head coverings of whatever sort you, you prefer.
0: What brought you to this realization that you wanted to get in this line of work? And, and also, it's, in addition to that, what's your favorite part of being a social worker? And what's
1: your least favorite part? My favorite part of it is I love people. So I call myself a social worker. I'm social and I work. I love it. Okay. But the least favorite part of it is the paperwork. So ah. I went to social work school thinking I'll be nice to people. And I realized that a lot of it has to do with paper. Now, I don't, you know, now it's digital, a lot of things. But that's the least favorite. And I don't have a requirement to do a lot because most of my clients are private paying and I don't need to deal with insurance companies and things like that as a matter of fact most of them are your sisters meaning shluchos your emissary friends around the world and i just love it because i feel like this is my you know i said to a gentleman the other day when he thanked me i said you guys are my nieces and nephews or my brothers and sisters love it and i really meant it and and i could feel that i i can feel that they feel it i so Yes, yeah, so let's rewind. To you gave me about six questions in that one question. So happy go lucky. Uh, how did I get into what I'm into? So I've always had a really good nature, and I can tell you that I I know it comes from my mother's side of the family, and my grandfather Oliver Shalom had a huge influence on us. He was not observant the way you and I would say, maybe keeping kosher laws and the Sabbath laws, etc. My grandfather Oliver Shalom was a reformed Jew, born in America, my family goes way back, it's shocking that I'm even Jewish considering, because we go way back to the original reform emigration from Germany to to the States, so he was always upbeat, he wrote humorous poetry, as a matter of fact, last year uh, I published a book of his poetry that sounds like Torah, and my mother helped me almost as a last will and testament to choose wow. which poems she liked most. I went through, he's got 13 books of poetry right here on my shelf. And there, some of them are just funny, some are very deep and philosophical. And many of them feel like Jewish philosophy or the philosophy you and I love, which is called Hasidut or Hasidus. And it feels like he was a chassid, but he didn't ever sit and learn Torah. So what I did is I culled the poems that sounded like Torah before my mother passed away. it, It kind of kept her motivated and I sat by her bed and she was convalescing at one point in a nursing home. And I would read her the poem and she'd either give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a shrug of the shoulders. So I kept the thumbs up and the shrugs and I divvied them up into various themes, and I have a beautiful book uh, of my Gramps poetry. And so that filled me with this optimistic kind of upbeat thing. My mother had a good sense of humor, music was, was her thing also, so that turned me on to music. And my mother was very involved in temple, even though it was reform, but she was the first woman president of the temple. So I had a really, quote unquote, good Jewish, uh experience even though it wasn't sufficient at the time mm-hmm. and i remember so you ask me how did i get into what i'm into now it was definitely a process but i can remember literally being in second grade and knowing and sitting i know what class i was in this is how peak experience a second grader's experience could be wow i had a music teacher in public school not religious but Jewish. I had a a music school, music teacher in Sunday school. You know, it was a reform Sunday school, but I always got solos there because you remember I'm a singer. So I liked music. I loved Judaism. I asked a million questions and I loved these teachers. And I remember in second grade saying, I want to be something to do with Jewish music and teaching. This was my, this was my refrain. And it hasn't changed one bit. You know, my company's name is called Torah Therapeutics. I can't evade and avoid seeing continuously the insights of the Torah from way back. So I have a weekly podcast, a little audio that I send around that has some insight from the Parson. It's usually something psychological, something this week, Kisavo, when you come, you should be fully present. Love that. When you come into the land, that's the first verse, you know, it will be that when you come into the land that you will, that you will inherit, then you will offer these first fruits. Well, the, the Rashi, the first Rashi asked, what is coming in? What does that mean? Are you in, because you stepped in? How does a person get in to where they're going in? But then the verse says, when you inherit it, it, so it means we all need to be there, it needs to be our land, so it's a fullness. Mm-hmm. And the Rebbe explains, when you're in something, you need to be all in. Mm-hmm. I can't think of I any more that. mindful existence to be completely and psychologically present. tuned in existence and knowledge base than our Torah. This is the five books of Moses. You don't need to go to the deep philosophers. Rashi's telling us how to get to live in. Live our lives. I s- kept asking questions about Judaism as a little kid. I thought I wanted to become a rabbi. Ooh. And a chazan. Chazanit, right? Or a and rabbet. Then... A rabbet the a chazanit. But But it, it led me to meeting Chabad. And that, that answered my questions. I, the, the questions kept being begged. And then how did I become a social worker? Well, you see that the the spirit that I have and the educational element of it and the Jewish element fits with my working with many of the emissaries of the Rebbe, right? So that makes sense. But where did the social work piece come in? So you may recall this woman, Roxanne Perry, Mm -hmm. Malaya Shalom. So she was a fabulous graphologist, probably... The preeminent graphologist in the late twentieth century. Of, of let's say, I could say the whole world because she was a world to me. And I was working for the Hecht's at National Committee. I was directing the Ivy League program and working with various other programs. And one of the things I did was I helped Shea Hecht with his deprogramming. Uh, we'll call them. Uh, exciting episodes with with Shia okay because it was always something it might have been a kidnapping it might no 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 joke I had no idea that you were involved in all that that oh, is yeah. so exciting and, and, and you know I felt like a cowgirl you know like I was a cowboy like he's he's you know he's, yeah he does some interesting and energetic things and in those days he was in the cult busting,
0: busting yeah
1: and we we met up with a girl a woman who was a Mooney and she was really absorbed in it. And, you know, one of the things they say is you don't talk to your parents and you don't talk to the deprogrammer. So there wasn't nothing coming out of this girl's mouth, nothing. And her parents were concerned. They were the ones who told us to kidnap her. We brought her to a safe house. I can't say where, and there was deprogrammers. I'm not gonna say the names of the people. And we, I was the good cop because it was a girl. So I got to go sh- grocery shopping, clothing shopping, because we kidnapped her. Right. I mean, she didn't have anything. She didn't pack her bags, right? So, so I was trying to get in good with her, but she wasn't talking to the deprogrammers. So Shia took her handwriting sample and sent it to Roxanne. And what we got back was a bio of this girl. It was so accurate that I could go in there. She basically said that she, she likes the, the arts and she's into classics. So I, I told her I was into music. Oh, I'm into classical music. And we had a conversation. I went out and bought her in those days. They were called cassette tapes. I don't know if you remember what those things yeah, were. I'm we went, sure. I went out and bought her some classical music and a little tape player, tape, tape recorder player. Anyway, to make a long story short, I was so intrigued by the graphology that later on, when I had a chance, I was interviewing kids for the Ivy League program and traveling from city to city. And that was the day when faxes, people didn't have faxes. That was the day you had to go to a drugstore or a printing shop, right? Maybe a doctor's office had a fax machine, but certainly the private home didn't have it, let alone the internet didn't exist at that point. So I bring all of my, materials from when i was a little kid handwritten things songs that i wrote and a chronology of things but i didn't tell her the chronology i sent her these copies faxed them and i was traveling i you know i was at yale and harvard and it went going around the northeast here and then i went home a week later and in the mail in the mail was my analysis and she basically described me as a therapist really Mm-hmm. and many other, un, as they say in French, friggin' believable things. So, she's, so she was spot on. She was spot on, and every once in a while, it's in my my uh, cabinets over there. Uh, every once in a while, I go over there, and I pull it out, and I read about myself because I keep evolving. She, she spoke way into the future. It was prophetic. There's something in there that I've never touched, and I haven't really had an interest or an opportunity to, but she says I could be a sculptor. Ooh, who knew?
0: Yeah, who knew? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, Ruth Devora. I am not surprised.
1: Soul sculpting and exactly. neshama yeah.
0: sculpting. So I want to get into a little bit of the, a few questions with regard to mental health. Yes. I once heard that people, you know, somebody said that mental illness is like a Jewish disease. Do you, first of all, do you buy into that notion? And... And if so, why do, you, why do you think it is a Jewish thing? Because it is, seems very prevalent in our um, communities and seems a lot of people are struggling with that. In addition, there's still so much shame and stigma and secrecy surrounding mental illness. Um, people are not sharing... And they're still hiding their struggles because it could might it might negatively affect their shidduch or their family reputation. Absolutely. And I mean, yes, we do see a lot of progress as well. I mean, you see this Neshama's podcast. You see people coming out and sharing their stories. And you know
1: what, my 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 day is booked. My day is constantly booked. COVID, quote unquote, didn't help matters. In other words, augmented the 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 anxieties and the fears and the phobias. You know. Probably, I I don't mean to start sounding political here and then I'm going to go back to all of this. Yeah, I want to stay away from politics. Yeah, well, it's not politics. I believe this is psychological. I believe if there were not fear mongering, there would be a lot healthier people today. And we might have even evaded and avoided some losses, some deaths, or certainly some graver responses medically to the problem. And I can tell you from firsthand, I've dealt now since March with people who either had COVID or their family members had COVID, many losses. I've had at least 10 losses in my practice in those last five, six months deaths. Wow. People people who could not go to their funerals or to their shivas. Okay, it was devastatingly horrible. But what I can absolutely say is the anxiety that's produced by listening and watching. I'm going to tell your audience right now, diminish your digital diet immediately, immediately. Watch as little news as possible. So going back to your questions. So is Judaism, are are, are Jews, uh, let's say, overly representing mental illness? Absolutely not. It's just that you and I know about Jews. And if you Mm -hmm. want to talk about persecuted communities or faith communities or minority communities, we all have our own anxieties or strangenesses or neuroses, as Freud would call them. But what I would like to say, speaking to your question about shame, is all, let's say, right wing religious communities of the West. Okay, so not Lahavdil, Buddhism, Hinduism, Eastern religions. Shame is something, a very kind of Western thing that gets promoted, especially in the right-wing religious groups. Now, in ours, I'm just going to be a little bit ethnocentric, in ours, we're really taught about openness we're taught about happiness and revealing and having someone to look up to to talk about those upsetting or shameful parts of our lives so so are there more jewish clients i don't think so is okay. Jude, are jews more neurotic we might have a, our own unique neurosis right. because we believe now more than ever right you've heard of genetics and you've heard of nature and nurture so there's the genetics and how you were brought up and there was a whole generation of people brought up by holocaust survivors a whole generation or people who had hard times in our community in russia fleeing stalinist russia and right so there's a thing called cellular memory there's a thing called passing on insecurities. So in our generation, it's possible there was more shame, more hiding. Hmm. Um, I know people who have been through the Holocaust, you know, I'm I'm not going to be explicit, but you know very closely the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. And in the early part of her life, she didn't have this level of inspiration and intuition and freeness and openness, right? Because when you're brought up by a Holocaust survivor, there are limits. Yeah. So They're totally different. So I don't think it's a Jewish problem in, in necessarily. However, it is a Jewish solution. I like now, that. Now Freud, let's say, was our first, first Jewish solution, quasi solution, because some of the stuff is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff is unbelievably, let's say, off. compared to our torah psychology right the drives theory and such like that i'm not going to get into freud but many many disproportionately many jews are in this field of helping yeah it doesn't matter if we're doctors or social workers or coaches or therapists if you were to tally that all up all the lovers of human humanity that the Jewish people stamp our, our signature is that we have mercy. Yes. We have a little humility sometimes, not all of us, not me. I say I'm humble, but emphasis on the bull part of the humble. So so we love doing kindness. So our nature ingrained in that cellular genetic heretic, herity, heredity is this kindness so we go into these kind fields so that
0: that so you're changing the question around you're actually you're making it that it's not that we struggle with mental illness but we're actually people that are busy fixing and helpers we're like
1: the helpers out there i believe i believe yes it is true remember you know i don't want to sound again it sounds like i'm very ethnocentric i am i love god i love judaism i love his torah i love hasidus I I that is something that inspired me. My, it's my grandfather in a Torah form. It's mm-hmm. a live live, living, vibrant existence. And so here's the ethnocentricity of it. It says, you will be a light unto the nations. A couple of weeks ago I gave one of my podcasts. I said we need to be a light and not hospital and not, God forbid, the opposite. Right? Everything has a capacity to go one direction, or it's opposite, zeh ula umas zeh. So we can be incredibly bright, and we can drag people down too. And this is our, I believe it's our mission. So my light is to be doing therapy, creating techniques, providing things that are kosher and fit into the Torah lifestyle. And that's the light that I like to shine. I see in the work that I do, which Part of it is meditation and relaxation and stress reduction techniques in the meditation arena, what is called in the world mindfulness is really very buddhist informed um, psycho psychological themes. It's called Buddhist psychology. It's not just Buddhist theory or Buddhist concepts or Buddhist ideology they call it Buddhist psychology and those psychological concepts some of them are fascinatingly similar to Torah Uh, but there's a division so there are those things that are really antithetical to Torah so if you don't know enough Torah and you don't know enough Buddhism you think it feels nice right and there are things that are absolutely consonant with Torah that I would call in the middle ground like positive psychology Rachel, you know all about it. Gratitude and loving kindness and compassion and self-compassion, right? Yeah. Yes, it says, we can believe in the wisdom of all the nations, right? One of the, one of the founders of, of positive psychology is another Jew, Martin Zelligman. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. So again, there you find Jews in abundance. Well, in the Buddhist psychology, in the mindfulness movement, the, the names are like Siegel and another spelling of Siegel and Siegel and Goldman and oh, wow. Davidson and Lazar and uh, Salzburg and Borstein and Brock, okay, okay so and we have a lot of Jews in that
0: field as well. And
1: Goldstein a lot, it's almost all of them and people I
0: just building on that. So we talked about how there are there's still a lot of shame in our community with regard to mental illness. What do you think we can do? What is something that our community... So we're,
1: we're starting to do it. Well, so what is something practical mocking, that we so, can do to change the stigma so and help what our I, families? What I, what I believe is, uh, firstly, I believe that God provides the healing before the harm. So he's maktim rafool amaka. And I do believe that this weird COVID situation has almost distressed enough of us that I've had at least four or five people in this period of time who said, my doctor told me to call you. My mashbia told me to call you, but years ago. I needed it, right. But now, finally, now they were pushed to the wall. So their anxiety, they could live with, you know, people are willing to survive with pain. It's a terrible thing we do to ourselves. Absolutely. We're talking about shame. Shame is really, a very detrimental thing psychologically, right? And so it holds us and contains us and prevents us from stepping out. So I believe the forcedness of some people who were by nature anxious, some of these people say, I was anxious when I was five. And then when I went to seminary, it was very anxiety provoking and I didn't wanna leave home and you know, or college, whatever. And, and you know, now they keep escalating with the comfort level of yesterday. Okay, so I'm managing. So I'm managing with two kids. I'm managing with six kids.
0: Do you think that part of the issue with anxiety, which I've seen with certain people, is that we don't tend to de- nip it in the bud? If we were to fix it or help find tools and interventions to kind of catch early It would become. It would be less of an issue because we allow ourselves to experience pain and allow ourselves to. I can handle this. I can deal with this. I can deal. And then it becomes so big and so that we have panic attacks, and then we need medication, and then we we can't cope.
1: You're you're speaking. You're speaking my lingo. You're speaking straight to my language. You're talking like you're 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 singing to the choir. Okay. Okay. This is exactly what I do with self-regulation. I I might be. Um, let's say scorned and looked down upon by many therapists, because I do not give all of that I consider excessive time and permission to wallow. If someone is coming to me, they're coming because either they're desperate and need tools right now, or they're motivated to heal themselves. So if a person just comes, I call it and breaths, throws up week after week, her problems, her problems, and maybe I give her an insight or a tool and she doesn't implement it. So after a while, I might even ask her if I'm helping her. She might say, yeah, because she doesn't mind nursing and her husband has plenty of money to throw at this and he wants her calm and happy. So if she's pacified with a weekly appointment, that's not my style. I will refer her to someone who has a little bit more. I mean, in positive psychology,
0: definitely, we talk about this idea that it's about going forward. It's not about your trauma. I mean, you have to,
1: you have to grieve
0: if you don't. Wait, wait,
1: wait. So, so I think we need to nip a point in the bud. You mentioned nip in the bud. First, one needs to acknowledge Mm. that suffering and pain. You don't need to wallow back in there. But if there's no acknowledgement, and what you said before, like the stuffing down, that the person doesn't think about it. So like I mentioned, I got someone five years ago, the doctor told her, and then there's another baby, and then another baby, and she keeps escalating because she's not taking care of that original anxiety. So there's that stuffing down. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about stuffing down. I'm talking about, okay, doc, I'm going to share with you what's been going on and the patterns in my life. I need insight. Mm-hmm. I want to get out of my patterns. Then there's an acknowledgement as the expression goes, if you can name it, you can tame it. Yep. But if you're not talking to someone, you're not actually verbalizing and getting it out there, right. Or writing it down so that you can really assess it a little bit more objectively with a third party you cannot get to the point where, you and I will 100% agree that positive psychology agrees is that you give people tools to figure out how to live in the present, have attitudes that are beneficial and optimizing their, their present life. So that's what I do. So really, if someone were to be a fly on the wall in a session, they would call me a coach probably. With Really, let's say, deep psychological knowledge, a lot of training, a lot of information. And my, let's say, coaching, if you want to call it psychotherapy, has moved more into a holistic health type coaching. So when I do an interview, I'm asking, maybe I'm not doing like what they would call an intake. And I know people still do this. And to me, that's so distasteful. Because the first appointment, you didn't share anything with them and they didn't share really anything with you other than your name, how old are you, how many kids do you have, what are their ages? And I get that when I call organically through the first few appointments. I'm going to ask things more like, how's your marriage? How many kids do you have? At least in the first appointment, how do you sleep? How do you eat? Do you get out? Do you get out in the, sun in the summer? Right? Things that are more relevant to right now, if she's not sleeping and she's got a six month old and she hasn't slept in the last six to eight months, well, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna focus on something completely different than let's say the marital issue. She right. needs to sleep first.
0: Absolutely. Do you know what I'm saying? She needs Absolutely. to get well.
1: And yes. this is clearly the Torah approach. We know that when there's a, a matter of pikuach nefesh, of safety and life and limb, you go for that first. You don't start teaching Torah. You don't start, you know, doing deep philosophical things or go back into history. You deal with the here and now so that you can have more here's and now's.
0: I like that. I have a question for you. You said about stuffing down and like running away from our feelings because. I know that with the internet and all the technological you know technological devices that we have we are able to effectively run away from our feelings by distracting ourselves with other people's lives and fake i yes. like to call it or you know or working for those endorphin rushes that we get and i believe that this is one of the ways that people are stuffing down their feelings is by distracting yes, themselves and that is what, what i've noticed is is that the downtime of Shabbos and Yom Tiff can be really challenging, especially to today's youth um, and even adults. Teenagers,
1: uh, teenagers even, who are digital natives. Right. They haven't been off of a device since they were even maybe seven or eight years old. Exactly. I remember being in a, in a grocery line where a baby grabbed a magazine, a physical magazine off the rack and tried to swipe the picture. Yeah, okay. turn a page.
0: they were born into this world those babies for sure. Yeah. But my question but is, I, is, like, I always, you know, I make an effort for myself and it's not an effort because it's easier for me. I like to be with my thoughts. You know, I'll go for a run and I won't listen necessarily to something. I'll just be with my thoughts and my feelings. Sometimes I will, sometimes I won't. I don't find it painful to be alone. And I find that that it's easier for me with regard to Shabbos and Yancev because of that. But I see that the people that are trying to stop having a very
1: hard time, they're
0: having a very hard time with that. And so my question is, as we as parents or even for ourselves, um, what can we do for ourselves to help ourselves wean off these distractions? so that we could be more present, Wonderful like you question. said, come into Wonderful like Kisavai, like come in fully. How can we come into Shabbos fully? How can we come right. into our lives, be more present with our children, our families
1: more? 100% valid, not just valid, very relevant to today's you know, time question. Um, this is what I do every day with my clients. I teach meditation. I don't call it mindfulness. I talk about being present in the moment. Be mindful versus being mindless. Oh, where did I leave my keys? Ah, oh, you guys, where's my purse? Come on, somebody quick, get my shoes, right? <laughs> no, as I walk in the door, there's a place that I put down my keys in my purse and I kick my shoes into that particular closet and I'm mindfully present. So how do you get there? We know, and I'm sure you heard this in one of your courses, what you practice grows. Yep. Okay, and that is the basic theme of neuroplasticity—that the brain is growable, changeable, movable. Right. Yeah. And so, in neuroplasticity, okay, let's go back into the Torah. It's there's there's a sentence in Mishnah Mitzvah Gereris Mitzvah. Yes. One mitzvah brings another one. One positive behavior brings another one. And it's chain. why? Because of the neuroplastic effect of the neurons wiring together. The Hebb's law, he called it neurons that wire, wire together, together, fire, fire together. together. Yeah. yeah, and my neurocoaching co- uh, trainer, Mark Robert Waldman, who's written many books with Andrew Newberg about uh, neuroscience, told the class, okay, I dare you to fix it because it's not exactly accurate. So I created and coined a phrase, neurons that flow together, grow together. He said, that's more accurate. So the more times you repeatedly do something over and over, they grow. So that part of the brain or that part of the system gets stronger and now we're able to do it better or easier. It's, hey, running, I bet you didn't run the length that you run now the first time you ran right i bet you were more out of breath then i bet you had muscular uh, pain at the beginning or every time you re-begin one of these things right and so you get used to something there's a learning curve you push a little further so what i teach is a simple meditation on sensations in the body the first one i call it the beginner's meditation on the breath what distinguishes my meditation from probably not all of the meditations on the internet because some of them are perfectly Torah consonant and perfectly um, health consonant without any religious elements. But mine actually is a metaphor for life At some other time if you want, we could do a little podcast on that. The other thing about it is it doesn't have these elements from the Eastern traditions. Such as gongs, it doesn't begin with a singing bowl or ting sha cymbals, right? So it's it kosher. With, it's kosher. It I wanna get into life that, life. but
0: I, I wanna get into that more, but I'm, I'm saving that because I'm very excited. Okay,
1: so the idea for that, Razel, to answer your question how do we help moms and dads help their teenagers? Help and themselves. Their children?
0: I, I really and believe yourself. this. Ruth DeBura. I really believe that it starts with us. Like well, if I'm not modeling for my children, that I myself am not on my device all the time. It's almost
1: as if it's as almost if you pre-wrote this, this podcast, Razor. that's exactly what I was going to say. We need to be good role models. So our children need to see our blatant, honey, would you take my phone and plug it in in my bedroom for me? Thank you, sweetie. I'm making dinner, I don't want to be disturbed. Or I'm doing homework with you guys, I don't want to be disturbed. And you narrate what you're doing with the intention of what you're doing. Right? I like that. Or or I've got, I've got mommies who say, look, I don't have a lot of private places. Even if I go into my bedroom to do your breathing or your meditating or whatever, I'm, I want to do a guided imagery or listening to one of your recordings, they're going to be there anyway. They're going to come in. So... So what we do is you start doing that a little bit on the recliner in the living room and everybody's going to start tiptoeing around you. Shh. Whenever mommy finishes this, she's much nicer. Okay. No, it's no joke. I had, I had a kid, mom say to me that her kid said, mommy, would you sit in the recliner? She knows that every time mommy gets off the recliner, she's happier. She's calmer right? I I have kids who tell their mommy go into the room and do what you do and and I have other people who say but my kids are always in the room so I say you know what get them involved have them make a do not disturb sign and please knock sign one side is maybe red and the other side is green and let them decorate it and put little thingies on it and they know when that's turned red you got to have it turned green every once in a while right When it's turned red, do not disturb mommy. She's listening to one of the recordings. She's closing her eyes. She's taking a nap. She's nursing the baby. So, right? So you have, you you show the children that you are involved in loving yourself, taking care of yourself, having self-compassion. And they will feel it too. They will feel your compassion on yourself will flow out to them. You're you're the, the cell tower of your familial universe. You're sending off the
0: vibes. So we're basically, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to model this and we need to show them that we're doing this and then help them enforce their own rules as well. Because parenting is a big piece of this as well. I have another yeah, question I, for you. Um, yeah. I've heard people say, you know, Anxiety, or I've, I've, you know, met many people who struggle with anxiety, and they'll tell me that you know it's connected to a trauma they experienced. Mm-hmm. Do you think that someone who did not have any specific trauma, mm-hmm. also, their ex- who experiences anxiety, is anxiety mm-hmm. the symptom or is it the
1: root of the issue? Those are great questions. So, there are theorists who say that such traumatic reaction of an anxiety response like a panic attack or something that's really escalated where they really can't come down for a while, right? So there are some theorists who say, there's no such thing as this experience without there having been a trauma. I personally do not believe that, Mm -hmm. okay? There's a thing that they call the big T and the little T. So the big T is what you're talking about, God forbid a car accident, God forbid a loss early in life, God forbid a very, very dangerous thing happening nearby, being part of a, like, like Israeli kids growing up in a war zone. Right. Okay. Losing so a parent. Yeah. The There's so t. many. Yes, the big T. The little T, the little T is those things that escalate our nervous system on a day to day basis. And you know, and I know that sometimes we are what's called well resourced. Yes. And sometimes we are not. So let's say resilient
0: more than resilient.
1: So the same idea. So let's say a person never sleeps and eats, you know what, and doesn't get out in the sun and doesn't move enough and doesn't have enough girlfriends or, or, or male friends if they're a guy or whatever, doesn't have a belief system. These are, all, these are all
0: things that you're listing that are co- components of a healthy whole. Right. Like. So they,
1: let's say a person is in the ditches, right? Like him. that. They're not so resilient, and a little T happens. They might have a bigger inner T experience than, you know, so you could say, like Harville Hendricks in his relationship therapy, Imago relationship therapy, talks about an old ski wound. So I went skiing as a kid, as a teenager, and boy, did I get a really bad boo boo. But it doesn't bother me except when it's really humid on very cold days. And you know what? I'm talking with my friend, and she says a joke, and she goes like this: and, "Ah, you killed me! Right. I didn't feel you. That was a love tap, right? But why did it? Because there's cellular memory there. Ouch! That's old. Mm. I have an old wound that when I sit in in the whirlpool, I feel it in the jacuzzi. I feel my old it was a bike accident. I was knocked off of a bike. I still feel it when the water is pressing on that. So what I'm saying is when we're less resilient, an old little ski wound could be reactivated. So a little T, that's not Become a big T. Could become a, a bigger T, especially if it's not acknowledged. So if you acknowledge. don't tame it, you can't tame it. So you got to acknowledge it. You got to bring it to the fore preferably discuss it with an outsider, right? And get an objective, more outside opinion, right? Because you know it says, the, right. the prisoner cannot extricate himself from the prison cell. He needs a warden, he needs a guard with a key, someone who's from the outside to be able to help. Right.
0: No, these are great. One more question with regard to that. Um, if any of my listeners currently right now are struggling with anxiety, you not even debilitating, just, you know, mm-hmm. subtle anxiety. Yeah, throughout yeah, their day. I deal with
1: the nice normal person. too. Right. Who's just <laughs> something, dealing with-
0: what's something practical that like a tool or something that you can tell them that they can use or say a mantra, something to help themselves move forward
1: okay so i wouldn't even use the word mantra so you might say affirmation affirmation correct yep positive statement Mm -hmm. uh you know there's there's a concept called earworms right a song that keeps going on in your ear right so make your own little positive thought stream so create a positive affirmation that you either say or sing that cheers you on to the next level. So I ask people, give me five goals. Well, I wanna be more optimistic. I wanna be a little bit stronger. I wanna get out more, right? So we would help them. I have a whole system. As a matter of fact, if you want, I can give you my email address now. If people want, it's a little hard to spell. It's the word Torah without an H, T-O-R-A, and then Therapeutics, T-H-E-R-A, P is in Paul, E-U-T-I-C-S at gmail.com if anybody wants these materials. So I, I do what I call the three-legged stool. I teach people how to relax their mind through a meditation, how to relax their body through a relaxing, slow breathing technique, and how to relax their soul by trusting because the antidote of worry is trust. I'm calm because I, I know that Hashem, that God has my back that he's taking care of me. So I teach basic techniques that they should read. You know, you probably know this book, it's called In Good Hands. And I, I have a PDF of it from hebrewbooks.org. And it's a, a collection of 100 letters of the Rebbe that are about trusting that God's got your back. My prescription is I tell my clients to read one letter about bitachon at bedtime, Or learn from Chavos Halavavos. The Rebbe refers us to this book called Duties of the Heart. There's one really long chapter called The Gate of Trust, Sha'ar HaBitachon. So that kind of a thing, any study in Bitachon, preferably at bedtime, you're not looking at digital devices. You could listen with earbuds soothingly. What you want is about five minutes of something that I call a calm balm. Right, the neshama, the soul feels calmed because you're in God's hands, you're in good hands. That, and then after your, whatever you do at night, I put lavender in a, in a diffuser and I say shema and I take my magnesium supplement. And, and at the very end, I do my breathing. I, I do my bitachon thought or statement and then I do my slow, relaxed breathing. So you can't imagine just what relaxing your breathing. I call this basic beginning breathing or beginning breathing basics, which is close your mouth. I know it sounds rude. It's the first time you're inviting me to this podcast. (laughs) Maybe the last one, because I'm telling your audience so many more questions I have. Close your mouth, breathe through the nose, slow it down, and see if you can exhale longer than you inhale. At bedtime, you take this principle, and you make it even more advanced. You make the exhale even slower by letting it stream out a teeny tiny mouth hole or using an F sound or an S sound if it doesn't disturb people nearby. Hiss it out that's even smaller to slow the exhale because relaxation. Here's the biggest secret. I don't know why nobody knows this. So relaxation is found in the exhale. This is the craziest thing. Why people don't tell us this, but it's so obvious. If I were to exaggerate an inhale, you would see I'm holding and tensing. <gasps> but when I exhale, I'm releasing and relieving. Yes. So with we can go into vagal techniques the next time or the next time right. after the next time. But when you exhale slowly, you activate your vagus nerve, which calms the body down. And at bedtime, while you're counting these cycles, it functions as at least dually, you're monitoring how well you're doing. So I'm getting better every night. I call it the breathing contest. You're the only contestant. So you breathe in, let's say three and out five tomorrow. Maybe I can breathe in three and out six. So or you get in better four out and them. out seven. And you keep improving. So it monitors your improvements but it also pushes out all of those anxious thoughts about COVID and homeschooling. And you can't do two things at once. If you're focusing you, on you, your breathing. You, you can, but with language. So here is a fascinating concept using inner narration language pushes out another train of language. The average person cannot think two trains of language there are some geniuses who can but your average person when he's counting he's not thinking oh my gosh what do how am i going to do that tomorrow and how am i going to pick him up when when i need to be here at the same time (laughs) we do that to ourselves and we waste our precious rest and sleep we need to be toning down so those three things a meditation a focus on anything it doesn't have to be the breath I I do my meditation sometimes out on a porch. I sit and I say, I pick a bird sound or a cricket sound or a cicada sound, and I stick with it. And when my mind wanders, I come back to it. Anything neutral, the Rebbe says, is game. Anything that's not, you know, we're not talking about Kabbalah and Hasidus meditation or prayer meditation. The Rebbe spoke about something different, something that's therapeutic.
0: I know there's a project that you've been working on with regard to meditation that you're very passionate about and is very. answering the call of the Rebbe. Can you share a little bit about that with us?
1: Sure. When I was a teenager, I was a crazy kid. You don't need to, you could just use your imagination, what I probably did. I was not brought up religious, so I could do whatever the heck I wanted. So I did it all. Okay. Don't ask. Don't, don't tell. Okay. So I had my best girlfriend's mom said you know you need to calm down and she took me to the transcendental meditation center and i learned tm now tm fast forward is totally idolatrous now all of a sudden they're able to change it and you can pick your own mantra and you don't need to kneel in front of the altar because they they want funding and they want to be in public schools right so that was 150 dollar uh I I got to uh, worship an idol and talk to a deity for 40 minutes, four years, 20 minutes, twice a day, and found out when I started being interested and asked a rabbi, the rabbi said on campus that the Rebbe had just spoken about TM and its idolatrous elements. Fast forward, I have to stop that immediately when I find out that I'm talking to a deity, a goddess, 20 minutes twice a day calling her name, right? And I stop, but the mantra we talked about neuroplasticity before, it went on its own. It was a habit, eight in the morning, four in the afternoon, before school, after school, it was a habit. And I couldn't get it out on my own. And I was starting to become religious and I went and asked Rabbi Manas Friedman, what do you do? He said, memorize the Rebbe's verses for children and things like, you know, God created the heavens and the earth at the beginning, uh, Shema Yisrael, our basic verses, I memorized these things, and as soon as the mantra would come in, I would say those verses, that's the same principle we just spoke about, because the average mind cannot think two trains of thought, word, language, at the same time. So that got, I got rid of that, but I was scared to death of meditation. I ran to the hills then I became a therapist, learned about hypnosis, then started teaching relaxation and hypnosis, then found out again, re found out that the Rebbe spoke about meditation, see meditation as ubiquitous on the internet in the format of mindfulness, see that the Rebbe was not just speaking about TM, but he's speaking maybe more now, because we've got the internet, and it's more widespread, and so I've, in the last 15 years, I've really dedicated a lot of my time, energy, and money to developing techniques. I have an album of relaxation recordings that are under rabbinic supervision of Rav Ullman from Sydney, Australia. Um, I'm in the midst of writing a book. I have a PDF booklet, a PDF that just came out that's really gorgeous. You'll get it on Sunday, Razel, with your email and um, this is something that I'm really very passionate about. I know that it all came from the Torah, and we do not need to go to further pastures. We can figure this out ourselves and do it in a way that meets all of these scientific requirements at the same time, you know, and benefiting the person's nervous system. At the same time, it's kosher and consonant with Torah. So that's my where Big can drug. people
0: find links to these things? I want to be able to so they put can it Go into... to
1: poratherapeutics.com and subscribe. I'll right. And they that will that immediately, within. they'll immediately get three emails uh, with the basic beginnings. They'll actually learn the three-legged stool approach that I mentioned early on with the meditation, the Rebbe's letters. You get a, the, the book is available PDF for free. And the breathing technique that I mentioned, the breathing contest. We all need it. We all yes. need it now. The we phone- We all need it more than ever, specifically- The phone has taken our brain and distracted it. And what we need to do is come back. It's the the antidote for the cellular phone, the, the smartphone is meditating and relaxing the nervous system, the three-legged stool.
0: I love it. I'm so glad that you shared this with, all, with us. There's so many more questions I have for you. Um, I'm ever grateful for you're sharing welcome. the time let's with let's us. Let's do
1: it again. Let's have and another tea time together.
0: Yes, I really enjoyed this. So thank you so much. And it's I really look honor. forward to um, spending time together soon. I've always enjoyed my time with you. So again, thank you. Ruth Thank you.